It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, July 24th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. A minute-by-minute account of the Trump White House on January 6th is detailed by the House Committee investigating the Capitol riots. The mob was accomplishing President Trump's purpose, so of course he didn't intervene. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Another big primary day is coming up as we move closer to Election Day in November. And things between the candidates are about as hot as the temperature outside, with new polling showing a tighter landscape as Democrats find more motivation. Overall, the polling is, is pretty bad for Democrats, even though they can point to some, some silver linings here and there. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. It took 187 minutes, House investigators say, for former President Trump to say this on January 6th, 2021. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. In the hours before that video message from Trump, the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol riot said the president was consumed with TV footage, taking the images in from a dining room near the Oval Office. He chose not to act. That's Illinois Republican Adam Kinzinger, who helped lead the Thursday night hearing, the ninth in a series of hearings that the committee has used to detail what it describes as a multi-layered scheme to overturn the 2020 election. The mob was accomplishing President Trump's purpose, so of course he didn't intervene. Fox News congressional correspondent Chet Pergram and I have watched all the hearings unfold over the past several weeks. He joins me again to help provide context on what we've learned, what it means for Congress, for voters, for upcoming elections, and what comes next for this committee with a fast approaching deadline to finish its work. There was a lot in this hearing. I think it was the lengthiest that the committee has had thus far. Uh, What stood out to you and what does it mean, I I guess, for the broader investigation here that the committee's uh, trying to to finish up? Well, Liz Cheney said at one point uh, early in the hearing that the dam is broken, that they're starting to get more information coming in. And what this probably means in the lead up to September is that we're going to have this drip, drip, drip. Uh, of information that leaks out maybe in August, uh, maybe early September before the next hearing, kind of like what we had in May and April earlier this year, where we were getting these audio tapes of Kevin McCarthy and these conversations saying that they, you know, he had had it with President Trump and that sort of thing. So there could be something like that that starts to come out that's that's revealing. Uh, a couple of things. There was a, a bit of tape in that where Kevin McCarthy said that, uh, you know, and this was a, a tape that was obtained by the committee that the president uh, he bore responsibility and even said he you know, bore some responsibility himself. That's something we've not heard directly from former President Trump here. Uh, the other thing that I thought was was interesting, and you have these moments that kind of take those of us who were here at the Capitol that day back to just how harrowing and how, uh, you know, the, the, the calamitous nature of that day, uh, the dangerous nature of that day of the vice president's mm-hmm. security detail, the radio traffic, very frantic, 
very panicked. Again, these are secret service agents. These are pretty calm people. This is what they're trained to do. Very worried about getting the vice president out of the building, describing all this smoke in the hall. How are we going to do it? Well, there's about five or 10 protesters down there. We're going to be or within five or 10 feet of some of these people, but we can get him out. Talk of possibly having to use lethal force. Uh, some of them on the phones with their loved ones saying this might be it. Kind of a 9-11 situation. You know, you remember people calling from the airplanes. Uh, I mean, that's that's some of the most dramatic stuff that we've heard so far, frankly. It and this was. former national security uh, official or this national security official who was unidentified uh, just talking about how ugly it could get at the Capitol. And, and another thing that stuck with me here, Jared, was Sarah Matthews, the former deputy press secretary mm-hmm. at the White House, describing this as one of the darkest days. And when the president in the two o'clock hour on January 6th put out that tweet um, that basically said, you know, bl- blaming a lot of this on, on Mike Pence, you know, to, to, to kind of rev up the crowd even more. She said that was one of the, the that was the exact opposite of what had to happen at that moment and that it was going to spur these people into action, give them the green light, her term, for them to go into the Capitol. Uh, that is pretty re- remarkable. And again, coming back to this whole idea, and this is something that Elaine Luria, the Democratic representative from Virginia, made. She said, you know, that President Trump thought that he could usurp uh, the will of the people here and, and kind of the enemy was being fomented from within, both in the people who came to the Capitol, his supporters and the former president himself. You also had the former deputy national security advisor, Matthew Pottinger, who said that tweet that you just referenced, Chad, was the moment he said he decided to resign. Um, and so that tweet, uh, coupled with sort of what we now know about the Secret Service trying to evacuate uh, then Vice President Mike Pence, really, uh, I think, told the story that, that this January 6th committee uh, was trying to tell. Uh, we also saw for the first time, Chad, and I've never seen this um, sort of outtake footage from a White House. And the day after, now on January 7th, uh, then President Trump putting together sort of uh, what essentially was a sort of a pre-taped address about the violence um, condemning it, but uh, not going so far as to say the election is over. Does that play a role in in what the committee's trying to accomplish? Absolutely, because, you know, they're trying to paint the picture that President Trump uh, was not ignorant of what really had happened here. He had been getting advice from these two competing camps. One, uh, the clown car camp, as Adam Kenzinger put it, or, or Team Crazy or, or whatnot, we, we've heard that, and Team Normal, which is how uh, the former campaign uh, manager, Bill Stepien, yes. described it. And, and Team Normal was saying, look, um, you know, you don't have the votes. Uh, There was nothing untoward in the election. Uh, They didn't beam in votes from spy satellites in Italy or or Venezuela or something like that. And thermostat, uh, you you know, monitors and everything else. And then you had people who were saying, yes, we did. And so, you know, that is seminal, you know, and some people have talked about, you know, could they try to to prosecute the former president or people around him? That that's very unclear. Mm -hmm. But that that's that presents the case. And maybe DOJ would look at this or maybe they would eventually refer this to the Department of Justice to say the president knew better and he could not bring himself to say those things. And 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 I think that that is is stark uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, that could be something that they send down to the Department of Justice. Uh, But at the very least, it, it shows the public that the president was really being told something else by people who were pretty reliable. And then you have, you know, team clown car saying something completely different off the wall. 
And so, you know, he, you know, is a, and Liz Cheney said this in the last hearing, you know, last week, she's like, you know, he is a mature adult. You know, he's in his, he's in his, his 70s. He can make his own decisions. And the idea that he was deciding to ignore this entire body of evidence here that the election was not stolen is significant. Uh, now, that, 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 that's a big deal. So to that point where, where you sort of talk about uh, letting this be known to the public, because this seems to be, you know, these hearings, these nine hearings uh, that, that the committee has had have very much been a presentation to the American people. Right. And so there are going to be those that maybe look with some skepticism, some cynicism that why is the committee now waiting until September so close to the midterm elections to pick this back up? Right. Is there some politics at play here? Uh, possibly. I mean, they do have a lot to go through. Uh, I would be shocked, shocked that they would do politics in an election year. I mean, I, I don't even say that from in a the House of Representatives, here. no less. But but you know what, Jared? And we got to we cannot let this go without saying this. And, and, and I will probably, you know, I look deep into the crystal ball and I see it lurking in the back. It's kind of nebulous right now, but I see it there. Beware the Ides of August. I could completely see a scenario where they get some other bit of information or just and let's just let's just say it's not even, you know, that relevant information. Mm-hmm. Let's say just for the theatrics, the stagecraft of this in the middle of August, because, you know, I always talk about how crazy the month of August is politically. Yeah. Congress is supposed to be out of session yes. for the most part. Yes. They usually aren't. There's some crisis that goes on. And this happens all the time, all the time. So some of the most seminal events in American politics yes. have happened in August. And so whether it has that much merit or not, you could certainly see this committee saying, oh, guess what? We got to call an emergency hearing one day in advance, like what they did, you know, uh, you know, a, a few weeks, weeks ago, ago yeah. at the end of June. Yeah. That's right. And bring everybody back to Washington and sound all the alarm bells. And then because, it, you know, people kind of start to check out and, you know, they're at the beach or whatever. Uh, that is one way to continue to maintain this narrative. And I don't want to sound cynical that, that all of no, this is but, just this political stagecraft. Yeah. But I could see that scenario happening. Like I said, I see that deep in the crystal ball there. It's just kind of this wisp of, of smoke right now. But it, it's sure there, Jared. Your crystal ball generally doesn't fail us. Um, let me finish with this, because part of this, too, has to be driven by, by sort of this deadline, right? That this committee, if midterm polling is accurate, is going to have to wrap up by the end of the year, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly in the House of Representatives. And then the question becomes, what do they do if Republicans have control of the House? How much political uh, gain is it for them to not talk about economic issues and gas prices and inflation. And if they're going to try to relitigate all this, especially if President Trump is going to run again and if they're actually trying to help him, does that actually help to talk about all this stuff and maybe deposing private citizen Kinzinger and private citizen, if she is, if she loses her primary, Cheney. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, that could be very interesting. But then again, it would take, quote, Speaker McCarthy away from this conversation about fixing, you know, pocketbook issues for Americans. And and I ask that question just because so so listeners understand, you know, this committee only lasts as long as this Congress. Right. Right. 1159 a.m. on January 3rd. It would have to be reconstituted. And it is unlikely. I think the point you're making is it's unlikely that Republicans, if they are in charge of the House, would keep this committee, at least as it is formed right now, in place. Right. Exactly. They might they might put together their own committee and right. be very interesting to see what Democrats do. And who, because Republicans who, who gets appointed and they want to know about the security failures. They want to know about the decision tree making. And, and so it would not be maybe un, 
uh, unexpected for that type of investigation. Jared, there, there is a real lane that this committee, you know, I think that this committee and, 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 and some people have talked about this. I've said this before, that this was really the third impeachment of President Trump. Yeah, this was pre impeachment. OK, that that's pretty clear. And that, again, that's not even a cynical statement there. That's actually kind of what they're doing. They're trying to undercut him and say he is not qualified. And Liz Cheney kind of said this at the end of the hearing here uh, that that that's kind of where they want to go. But there are some questions I mean, I have questions. I work in this building every day. And what I was seeing with my own eyes in the days leading up to January 6th and the answers I was getting from the former security officials at this Capitol, including conversations I had with former Sergeant at Arms Paul Irving for the House and now deceased former Sergeant at Arms Michael Stenger, who died of cancer in late Mm -hmm. June, um, they were telling me something completely different. And, and I don't know if they just couldn't see it or there was bad information or they were scared to you know, let the cat out of the bag. There are some serious questions there for Paul Irving. I mean, Paul, uh, Michael Stenger can't talk to us anymore, but but Paul Irving certainly could. And they did have him in a Senate uh, hearing very early on in this process in the winter of 2021. But we've not heard a peep from uh, Paul Irving since. It'll be interesting to see where this uh, leads. As you say, Chad, we expect hearings in September, but don't be surprised if maybe we, we hear from this committee uh, well, a little and, bit. And I, and I said it for the first time this year, Jared, beware the odds of August. There it is. Chad, have a great weekend. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Arizona, Missouri, Michigan, Washington, Kansas, all have primaries coming up August 2nd, and tensions are high between and among some in their own party. In Arizona's Republican Senate race, candidate Blake Masters, who is polling ahead, told rival Jim Lehman that he got Trump's endorsement over Lehman because Trump thought Lehman was a bozo. I asked Masters for this podcast why the Border Patrol Union endorsed Lehman over him. They like Jim better. Hey, great. You know, I told Jim, congratulations, you got a union endorsement. That's cool. Uh, I got President Trump's endorsement. President Trump knows I'll be the best on the border. Attorney General Mark Brnovich is in that race, too. While polling has him behind Masters and Lehman, polling had also shown many were still undecided in Arizona when we talked a couple of weeks ago. At the end of the day, those undecided voters, they'll ignore the millions of dollars that Blake and Peter Thiel are spending. They'll ignore what President Trump has or hasn't said about me. The governor's primary has also been pretty heated. At an Arizona PBS debate, Trump-backed candidate Carrie Lake put some of the blame for school mask policies on the Arizona Board of Regents, while her main opponent, Karen Taylor Robeson, was a regent. Wait so a they second, didn't have Ted, to that is a lie. Ted, did not, on, that Arizona, is a lie. Hold Arizona on. Board of Regents Fake record. Lake. Arizona Board of Regents. Fake Lake, that's a lie. The next batch of primary fights comes as polling is starting to indicate a tighter general landscape between Republicans and Democrats. While polling had shown Republicans ahead for a time, one Siena College poll from early July found voters preferring Republicans by just a point, so a statistical tie. A week later, an Ipsos poll found Republicans lost their edge and were also statistically tied with Democrats. An Echelon poll in the middle of the month found Democrats had a seven-point lead over Republicans, even as the president's poll numbers continue to fall. The, the big picture is that 
overall, the polling is, is pretty bad for Democrats. Josh Krausauer is senior political correspondent at Axios. Even though they can point to some, some silver linings here and there in, in some of the polls. Uh, Joe Biden's job approval rating in the average, the RCP average, 37%. So that, that's pretty bad. The generic ballot, the test of whether Republicans or Democrats have an edge in the battle for Congress. Democrats have, in some polls, moved a little bit um, to a tie or maybe even taken the lead in some polls. But keep in mind that Democrats usually have an advantage in that question traditionally. Even when they won or, sorry, lost the House in 2010, a lot of the generic ballot polls showed Democrats with a small advantage even even then at this point in time. So I I wouldn't, if I'm a Democrat, I wouldn't look at a tie on the generic ballot and start popping the champagne uh, right now. It's it's Mm -hmm. still pretty, pretty rough. For, for the party. I, th- I think the one thing that Democrats might be able to look uh, a little bit more encouragingly at is the fact that their own voters are a little bit more engaged than they were a couple months ago, whether it's because of the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, maybe it's because of the January 6th hearings, but Democrats are, are more eager to vote in the midterms than they were a couple months ago. In fact, the Fox poll that came out this week showed that Democrats are now t- they just, they're equally as engaged as Republicans oh. in, in being excited about the midterm election. So that, that, that if the Democratic base, that may be the last hope for Democrats and for President Biden, that the Democratic base shows up and cuts down some of their losses. You also, I think, have some insight maybe into the House versus the Senate. There's been some polling about the odds right now of Republicans getting a majority in the House more easily than in the Senate. What is what's that about? It's all about candidates. And in House, Republicans have been doing a better job getting good candidates through primaries than the Senate, their Senate Republican counterparts. Uh, part of it, I think, is also because Trump is much more involved in the Senate races and some of the governor's races. He, uh-huh. they, aside from the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment, and he, he just hasn't been involved uh, as nearly as much except against Liz Cheney in Wyoming. But, but he just doesn't have the attention to focus on all these different House races. So Republicans have actually gotten more mainstream electable candidates through, through primaries, whereas in the Senate side, you've got Herschel Walker who um, a lot of Republicans panicking about whether he can kind of run a good enough campaign uh, to, to take advantage of this political environment. Blake Masters, who is the favorite now in Arizona, uh, you know, has said a whole slew of controversial things from Social Security uh, to, to comments about abortion to saying the Unabomber was an underrated political thinker. These are comments that are going to come back if he's the nominee to haunt him uh, in a general election, even if the Republicans should be doing very well in Arizona in the midterms. Uh, you, you, Dr. Oz, his numbers have been pretty weak in Pennsylvania after getting out of that, that messy primary, and he's been trailing in, in the most recent public polls. So th- th- there are just, you look at the polling and, and you look at Biden's job approval, you look at the generic ballot, you'd think Republican Senate candidates would be up or would at least be, be running very well against their their challengers. Instead, you're seeing a whole lot of Republican candidates underperforming and raising really, really serious doubts in, in, in Republican circles in Washington on whether they can take advantage fully of this political environment. Yeah, you had a bit of a tweet thread recently about some of the Republican Senate candidates who are running in races where the Democratic incumbents are considered more vulnerable and those Republican finances. Um, you highlighted like Blake Masters in Arizona, J.D. Vance relying heavily on Peter Thiel money. No one in the Missouri Republican Senate race has cracked the million dollar mark. Um, I think you mentioned New Hampshire as well. What are you what are you gleaning from that, especially when you compare the fundraising numbers for the Republican Senate candidates with what the Democrats are raising? 
that's that's right, Jessica, that Democratic Senate candidates are setting fundraising records and Republican Senate candidates, for the most part, are doing very poorly. I mean, New Hampshire is a great example where Senator Maggie Hassan is probably one of the most vulnerable Democratic senators on a ballot. New Hampshire is a, a leaning blue state, but in this political environment, Senator Hassan very vulnerable. And yet Republicans have a crowded primary field. No one raised more than a half million dollars in that race, which is pennies uh, for a Senate campaign, even in New Hampshire. Mm. Uh, Arizona, like Blake Masters just does not like fundraising. And aside from, from Peter Thiel and maybe some libertarian donors, uh, he, he only raised 827, he actually raised less than $827,000 because he put some of his own money in, into the into his fundraising account. And he badly, badly trails Senator Mark Kelly in terms of campaign cash in, in, in such mm. an important state like Arizona. So it, it really is uh, un- un- unprecedented, frankly. I've been covering politics for 20 years. Almost every year where one party has a big advantage just because of the polling and things looking very promising, they almost always have a huge fundraising edge. Donors want to give to the winner. Donors try to you know, support the party that looks like they're going to win, win back the House and the Senate. Uh, you're not seeing that uh, this time around, there's a, especially on the Senate side. You, there's a major, major disconnect between hmm. the political environment and the donor money not, not going to these, these Senate races. Let's look ahead. We have some primaries in August. Uh, August 2nd, to be exact, is the first one in the month. Um, but before we look ahead, Let's look behind at Maryland's race. Dan Cox just won the Republican primary for governor over the current Republican governor's pick, Kelly Schultz. I want your thoughts. Was this, a, was this a, I guess, another example of Democrats putting money in to, to boost Cox, who they think you know, will be easier to beat? What, what was this about? Because Larry Hogan is the current Republican governor, and there was a little bit of a proxy war, right? Trump backed Dan Cox and Hogan backed you know, Kelly Schultz. What did you make of Dan Cox winning over Maryland Republicans? Yeah, it goes to show you that the Republican Party still is naturally very Trumpy. It, it, I think Hogan didn't put a whole lot of effort into trying to, to boost Got his it. candidate Kelly Schultz. You know, it's, to be honest, I don't know if I, if I was Governor Hogan, I don't know if I would want to make myself front and center in a, in a primary where Republican voters are still fair, fairly supportive of, of Donald Trump, um, and, and he personalized that primary in a way that probably wasn't helpful for the Republican Party. And I'd also say that the you know the Democratic the Democratic Governors Association they only spent about a million in Maryland, but it was more money than Kelly Schultz spent on her campaign. So he, they actually actually turned Dan Cox into someone who didn't have any money and was sort of just a name on a ballot who was endorsed by Trump, of course, into someone who had a message on TV. And and that made a pretty significant difference in pushing him over the top in that primary. Look, the the political environment is such that in Maryland, a moderate Republican like Kelly Schultz would have had a decent chance of winning, uh, continuing in Governor Hogan's uh, footsteps. But Democrats saw that risk. They put money in the Republican primary, and now it looks like they're 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 near lock to hold on to the Maryland governorship. Let's let's talk about August second. I talked to Fox News Decision Desk team member Darren Shaw and the head of that desk, Arnon Mishkin, last week, and I asked them, you know, what are you guys paying attention to August second? Arizona and Missouri. I think you've said the same thing to me. <laughs> so I want to start with Arizona. Um, we've already referenced Blake Masters. He is ahead in the polling. He told this podcast this week, he, he thinks he can beat the Democratic incumbent Senator Mark Kelly if he's the nominee and he rejects sort of any criticism that he's too far to the right in a, in a purple state, that, that he has the common sense that Arizona voters want. But he did say it will be close. It won't be some like landslide. Is he too optimistic based on what we know of Arizona? 
Well, in this political environment, when Republicans have a sizable lead uh, on the generic ballot in some polls, in Arizona certainly, any Republican can win. But Blake Masters has turned that race into one that Republicans would likely have been favored to win, assuming he's the nominee, of course, into at best a toss-up. And I, I think he actually might, might, might be an underdog given the, his, his record and given his long string of comments in the public eye that have been just very controversial and unpopular. He said recently that he supported privatizing Social Security. He uh, takes a very strict position on, on regulating abortion. He said... He, his 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 role or sorry his un, well, view, an underrated political philosopher uh, that that he he named was the Unabomber. Um, these are going to be if he wins the nomination, the first ads you're going to see are Mark Kelly going on TV reminding voters, swing voters in suburban Phoenix about these comments, and they're not going to be popular with with middle of the road voters. They may not even be popular with some less dogmatic Republicans. And so you know Arizona. If you, I, I've talked to a lot of Republican strategists. They think Arizona is the state where uh, the candidate it could cost them a otherwise winnable race. That Georgia is a, a, worry, a worrisome race. Pennsylvania with Dr. Oz are a little bit concerned, but Arizona is the is the one race where the candidates and the lack of quality candidates is really likely to, to cost the party badly. I wonder what re- those Republican strategists have told you about Carrie Lake. Um, she's running for governor. She is also ahead in the polling um, and endorsed by President Trump. She's a pretty firm, you know, the election was stolen candidate. Um, but but it sounds like some more of the establishment Republicans in Arizona, like Governor Ducey, have been a little bit more critical of her. I think Ducey said that she's putting on an act that he doesn't really even believe that she is who she is acting to be. Does she have the same headwinds that maybe somebody like Blake Masters has in a purple state? Or is, are these two candidates, like, can we not compare Carrie Lake and Blake Masters? Well, so for, first off, in the primary, Carrie Lake is going to have a tougher time than Blake Masters just because the establishment led by Governor Ducey in Arizona has actually endorsed her opponent and actually is organizing it and really working overtime to try to support the the other Republican candidate, Karen Taylor Robson, who's a well-financed real estate developer who is spending her own money to the tune of the many, many millions of dollars into that primary. Everything I've heard about that governor's race primary suggests that it's going to be very close. Uh, this is the Arizona governor's primary, maybe the biggest and most significant test on, on the primary map in August, because it's it's really Trump versus Pence, the establishment versus MAGA. Uh, you know, if Lake is the nominee, look, again, this is a very strong environment for Republicans. So anyone, any Republican could win, even if they're very, very badly uh, damaged or if, they, if they're not very well liked. But uh, Lake would certainly have a tougher time winning the governorship if she won the nomination than someone like Karen Taylor Robson. Let's talk about Missouri, because there's been a lot of drama on really both sides of the political aisle, aisle there. But I want to start with um, the Republicans. Eric Greitens, the former governor, he's on he's leading in the polls in the, in the Republican Senate primary. And some, including Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley, have expressed concern if he's the nominee that a, a Democrat would win. Um, I guess. Greitens' baggage includes an allegation from his ex-wife of abuse. As you know, Holly's endorsed Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler in that race. And it's gotten a lot of attention, especially after Greitens' um, ad where he's like hunting rhinos and holding a gun. Um, and then there's, of course, Trump. He hasn't endorsed, but he did rule out endorsing Vicki Hartzler. What do you make uh, of what's happening in this race? It does seem a little bit dramatic from the side. It's a, a real mess for the Republican Party. Now, belatedly, there's a super PAC that um, some some big Republican donors are, are giving to to take out or to 
damage the political standing of, of, of Eric Greitens. And that may ultimately have a decisive impact, especially when you're talking about all these different candidates running in, in this primary. But then you had, you know, you talked about Trump un- or anti-endorsing, I guess you could say, Vicki Hartzler, <laughs> who's the Hawley-backed candidate. It's a very, very confusing primary if you're a Republican in Missouri. You know, it looks like Eric Schmidt, who's the attorney general, is now emerging as a narrow favorite just because he's, you know, hasn't been attacked by Trump. Greitens is, is you know, he, unlike Greitens, he, he's got support from a wide range of Republican figures in the state of Missouri. But boy, I mean, no, no one seems to want to win this race. And the fact that Greitens is still in the mix, despite that record, the, the, the domestic abuse, the, the scandal, it's just the notion that someone like this could be considered uh, viable after all that baggage is, is still pretty hard to believe. Let's talk about the Democratic candidates briefly. We, we were talking about veteran Lucas Kuntz, I think is how you pronounce his last name. But now Anheuser-Busch heiress Trudy Bush-Valentine is in the race. She seems to be doing pretty well and has a compelling story. She's a widow, a mother of six, but lost her eldest son to opioid addiction. I want to read you this, though. The Springfield Leader newspaper said of all the Democratic candidates' similarities, one of them is this, end the Senate filibuster to advance Democratic policy priorities. What about some of the positions the Democrats have, and what does that mean for their chances? Yeah, well, Missouri is a very Republican state, so I think the only way a Democrat has a chance is if Greitens ends up becoming the, the Republican nominee. And even in that scenario, I think Greitens, because Missouri is still so very Republican, I, I, Greitens would, would still have a pretty good chance of, of, of winning. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the Democrat, Democrats have a primary, too. Trudy Bush-Valentine is, is probably the more electable Democrat. She's got money, and, and she has a, uh, she's a she got the Bush name, which means a lot in, in Missouri. Uh, she's a philanthropist. So she, she's someone who would probably pose the, the biggest threat to, to Greitens. Uh, but they also uh, there also is a uh, Lucas Kuntz, who's a more progressive uh, state. Uh, I believe he's a Iraq War veteran who could win the primary and and and, and make it even less likely that uh, Democrats can contest that Missouri race. So mm-hmm. you know, I think Bush Valentine is, is the best hope for Democrats. Uh, but even she would face face pretty long odds against the Republican field. Just two more for you, Josh. This one is a little tricky. Kansas, Michigan, and Washington State also have primaries August second. Kansas has a Democratic governor who I believe in in your tweets, uh, you've noted that she's on the end of higher end of being popular. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has had a heck of a term. She'll find out which Republican she's facing. And in Washington state, two of the 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Trump will see if, if they're getting primaried because two of them are in Washington state. Well, let's, let's start with Michigan is, is sort of the, the, the one of the more entertaining uh, states. You've got a wide open, wild uh, Republican primary for the right to take on Gretchen Whitmer, uh, including one Republican who was arrested for his uh, participation in the January 6th riots, uh, who may not, you know, Cal, Cal, Ryan Kelly may not win the nomination, but he's in the mix. And there's also a fascinating twist that I'm reporting on uh, at Axios about uh, one of the leading Republican candidates is actually attacking Betsy DeVos, Trump's former education secretary, as a rhino and a traitor in a way to distinguish himself from another Republican who was endorsed by Betsy DeVos. So, you know, Democrats have always disliked Betsy DeVos. Usually she was a sort of a conservative hero in Michigan circles. But uh, one of the leading Republican candidates, Kevin Rinke, in that in that primary is actually attacking Betsy DeVos in, a, in an ad, which is a new twist on our uh, Republican politics. Hmm. You know, Washington State's going to be a big, big test, too, for uh, 
two of the Republicans who who uh, supported Trump's impeachment. Washington State does primaries a little bit differently than in a lot of the country. You right. actually have Republicans and Democrats on that same ballot, which makes it a little bit easier for a more moderate candidate, a more moderate Republican to win or at least move on to the, the general election. So Butler and Newhouse both have a good chance. Not, 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 they're not guaranteed to, to win the primary because they are facing um, Trump-endorsed challengers in both those races. But I, I've been talking to some pretty pretty plugged-in Republican operatives who think that they have a pretty good chance to, to to win the, the nomination and, and get reelected to Congress. And that's um, in large part because Trump hasn't focused on Washington. He's focused on Liz mm-hmm. Cheney. He's focused on Liz Cheney in the House, but has stopped focusing on some of the other Republicans who voted for impeachment. And that includes Peter Meyer in, in Michigan. Uh, that's another big primary to watch. Uh, Meyer facing a uh, Trump-endorsed challenger who hasn't raised a whole lot of money, but again, a very big test of where the Republican Party is and can they can they overlook, uh, you know, a uh, a well-liked congressman who nonetheless voted to impeach Donald Trump. Josh, finally, we see um, John Fetterman in New Jersey after his stroke. He's running for Senate against Dr. Oz. And after that happened, we heard a lot of discussion about what health problems mean for a campaign. Um, Fetterman may still win, but in a similar, maybe larger vein, what does President Biden having COVID mean, if anything? Um, as as we see, you know, in, in some of the polls, an increasing number of Democrats want someone else to run in 2024. Does this, does, does COVID matter or is 2024 just really far away from, from now and from a COVID situation that's happening now? Well, look, I think, I think President Biden getting COVID, having apparently mild symptoms kind of underscores where the public is. Uh, they don't, they, if you look at every poll, Jess, COVID barely rates as an issue anymore, which is a right. far cry from what we saw at the beginning of the year. I think people realize that COVID, you know, for the most part, for most people, isn't that serious. You can get as bad news doing, taking Paxlovid. You know, people who are vaccinated have an extra layer of protection. And, you know, they're moving on with their lives. And then I think Biden, this is sort of an illustration for the whole country that even someone at 79, like Biden, uh, you know, he, he apparently, you know, he can get, you know, he can, he, once he gets over this, he'll, he'll be immune and, and, and is gonna, you know, get him the country back to normal. Uh, uh, Democrats don't really want to talk about COVID and some, even when, when some of these very liberal jurisdictions talk about bringing back a mask mandate, bringing back some regulations, that's definitely not in the White House playbook and not in the White House lingo. So, yeah, I mean, COVID is not an issue for, for most voters anymore. Even the most liberal, pro, you know, lockdown, pro regular, pro Fauci Democrats have largely moved on and focusing on a lot more uh, bigger fish to fry, namely, at least for Democrats, abortion rights, gun control in the economy. Josh Kassar, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jess. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we'll keep an eye on what Congress is up to before their August recess, as well as how the president is faring as he battles COVID. From all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.